Hello, everyone. Welcome to What is Covenant Specialized Pastoral Care Services Christian Counseling Ministry. My name is Michael David Clay. Innocence, what is it? It's something hopefully all of us want to be. It is certainly something that possibly all of us think that we are, more or less. And with that, there's a lot of rationalization that probably goes along the way with coming to such conclusions. But true innocence means you've never done anything against the law. Now, now what is the law? There's probably many laws and many different levels and most likely as many opinions as there potentially could be persons. Uh, however, when you put it all together, there's a set of rules. And it's not a small measure. There's a lot of rules, a lot of laws, a lot of different levels of legislation that's in the world. Now, you could beg the question, well, why is that? And it probably provides the answer <laughs> to that uh, notion of innocence, or as we're going to discuss in the podcast today, the lack thereof. If there weren't so many rules, legislation, and laws, then we probably could say most people are innocent. One, you could say that because you're not going to break one if there's not one. However, simply because there's not a rule or law, or I should maybe say it this way, good behavior, we might call it adaptive behavior. Uh, what is adaptive in the broadest of terms when it comes to empiricism and science? It's life. And not only life, but more life. <laughs> and not only quantitatively more life, but qualitatively a good life. Most rules and laws speak to good behavior, which speaks to adaptability, being adaptive, which speaks to not only life, which speaks to not only more life in terms of quantity, but ultimately speaks to then more life, abundant life, qualitatively. Now, again, there's several parts to that equation factored in. Maybe it's progressive. I don't know. Maybe someone somewhere one day passed, sat down, and decided, you know, we should make life and then make life good. Now, of course, they were already alive, so they really couldn't make life. But I should maybe add to this, more life. We should make everything about life and then make it as best as it could be. Now, it's possible. It's also not probable. How do I know it? Because it didn't turn out that way. Because for all the rules, the laws, the process of legislation, the judicial system as we know it to be, 
Even with the best of intentions, people have to go to court. And the courts are filled with people believing that they're right, that they're innocent in what they're doing, somehow justifying or rationalizing their behaviors. And if it were not so, then the premise that we all could want more life and with that best or better best life would not have to be legislated, it would not have to be orchestrated, directed, defined. We would not have to have someone <laughs> hold us accountable or culpable. It should just naturally flow out of us, right? Say right just to, again, emphasize the point. And right, the point being righteousness should be easy. But we know it's not. And the evidence of that, not only in terms of who ends up in court, not only in terms of the massive amounts of laws, the differing levels from uh, federal to state to municipalities, Ultimately so, people would not be killing one another, which if truly life, everything should be about life, all living should be about not only life, but best, better life, killing does not make sense. Now, if I were a criminologist, if I were a sociologist, if I were a judge, if I were a legislator, I might be able to give you all the statistics on every law and then every infraction of that law. It just seems overwhelming to begin with, to consider doing that, to begin with. But surely, if we just brought it down to the worst of laws, <laughs> worst of offenses, I should say. The laws are there to prevent. I am sure the number is still an incredible number of people each day that are killed. Now, again, some of them die <laughs> with no ill intent or, or malice attached to it. No want or will on the part of the murderer to kill the person, and they're accidental, so to speak. There could be negligence. Of course, that's also part of this whole judicial process. We've carved out within laws sub sort of laws or at least considerations. We've added things, different dimensions to them because sometimes murder is with intent Sometimes it's just through negligence. Someone did not do what they were supposed to do. Uh, it really wasn't with the intention of harming or killing someone. But in the end, it did that. And we still consider that to be homicide or murder, but not quite the same as what we 
often called cold-blooded murder, first-degree murder. But there's a lot of killing going on in the world that would speak to the fact that we didn't begin with someone saying, oh, this is great. We'll come up with all these rules just so that we could or at least give consideration to ways just to make life better. It probably originated as much out of murder or death, maybe in negligent terms, but we know in the biblical context, the first murder was when Cain slew Abel. It didn't take but a few chapters as Moses wrote them before we got to our first murder. And you could argue that really the first murder occurred when the devil tricked Adam and Eve into giving up on God. And by the way, his righteousness, which gets us back to my initial premise. I don't doubt. I believe entirely, confidently, that God made us to love. I believe it was its intention. I believe it was what he desired for humankind. I believe had we been able to do that, uh, we probably wouldn't have still had to worry about life or the best, better, best quantity or quality of life, abundant life, because not only did God create us with that, but he created life in such a way that it would not beg the question of, is this all there is? <laughs> or in any sort of measurable way, demonstrate that there was an option for something lesser. What brought all that out was, again, the devil. What that did was showed to Adam and Eve, just how, I guess, corrupt, how iniquity was within them, or at least could become part of them, and then out of that, they could make mistakes, some of which could end up in death. Now, again, on the surface, what the devil did really wasn't kill Adam and Eve because he couldn't. He doesn't have that power. However, what he could do and what he did and what he persists in doing is taking in that condition of innocence, God created us humans to love and the world not only to supply us everything we need, but in a way that we would love the world out of that love that was within us. I use words, could use, will use words such as nurturance and caring, kindness, responsibility, desire to preserve life. But even as I say all of that, we all know that's not how it turned out. Yes, we were innocent until proven guilty, but once again, it only took a few chapters 
before our guilty was established. Who established it? The devil provoked it, tricked it. But Adam and Eve did it. Now, when they did it, was it even that God would not have forgiven them? (laughs) No, because God forgives. Not only does God forgive, he forgives and forgives and forgives unto all who would otherwise confess, say they made a mistake, admit that whatever iniquity is, it could get in them, but also along that path or course of confessing, admitting their iniquity, their sin nature, could ask for forgiveness, but not just say, oh, well, you let this thing pass. Don't hold it against me. But truly dig inside, look inside themselves for the love that's there. To have a will to love. Yes, it's in us to love because God created us for love, with love, with even the Holy Spirit. Children are innocent, especially newborns. But it's also in us because of the true iniquity of our flesh nature, love being spirit nature, flesh being natural origins, love being supernatural and divine origin. Our human nature is carnal and corrupt. What is corruptibility? If you look at it in material terms, and that's really all the humans in a physical dimension are made of, is the earth and the elements therein. But everything in natural regard dies. It really doesn't die. The elements remain. But the form, the constitution, the way it's put together, when it's over, it's over. It has to then be recreated, put back together, and in that, resurrected. But the physical dimension does not necessarily mean, could, I don't know that it does, that there's going to be humans in the future when all humanity passes. And I do believe that, too. Like everything else in a natural regard, knowing, too, our humanity is of corruptible nature, material regard, the rules governing the material that God has instituted, his legislation, his law, is that things naturally will pass away. Does that mean he doesn't like them? No. Does that even mean that, again, they're not adaptive or that life does not continue? And that's what I'm trying to make a distinction of. No, just the form. What we are as humans has a limited span of time. We're as grass, right? There is the vapor withereth the grass. There is the vapor that vanishes when the sun comes up. 
It doesn't mean what makes the vapor goes away. It just changes. We will change. They'll come into our humanity. We will be new creatures, recreations, if you'll allow me to use that word, but not of me, not of you, at least not in human bodily form. What that will be, I have no idea. I don't want to guess. Uh, I don't see any evidence again that humankind is going to be excluded. Life will continue in material and natural realm. In that sense, it's eternal. And I do believe the human soul and spirit is eternal as much within Christ will live eternally, be directed toward life eternal. But if you're not in Christ, if you're not reestablished in Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit, within the spirit of love, you're not going to endure eternally as life. You're going to always live on the side of the natural, which then will always be within the context of the opposite. So if adaptability is life, maladaptive is death. Now, I can't say that completely because God also did not intend any human spirit to die or live eternally in a condition of death. He, again, created us for love, not only as we expressed it or discussed it. I did. <laughs> Shared it with you, making it a we. Earlier in our conversation, in material regards, but he's always intentioned us in supernatural, spiritual regards to live forever, not die forever, as with the second death in biblical context, but have eternal life. We can choose which of those two we live by. Once, however, our innocence has been stolen, which is really what the devil did, which is really what we would consider to be an act of murder. Certainly, Cain slew Abel, but the devil killed us. I tried to. <laughs> Were it not for God, his grace, mercy, his forgiveness, which is what got me started on all of this a few moments ago, Adam and Eve did not even accept that they could go to God and ask for forgiveness. Would their bodies still have passed on? I believe yes. But that wasn't where life eternal was from the very onset. They just didn't understand that. That's how the devil tricked them. But as much they'd have asked for forgiveness, then certainly they would not have had to have left the garden and... Possibly the degradation of that love, the corruptibility, the way the devil continued then 
as he does now to steal people's soul and spirit, so much so he would drive them to self-destruction and how he does that is driving a wedge between them and God. Convincing someone, whether it takes much conviction, convincing or not, that God no longer loves them, he's cursed them, He's tired of it. He's going to give up on them. He's going to quit. He's going to deny them life as penalty. Really ultimately leads to one's self-destruction because they do then run from God, hide out from him, live in shame, live in guilt. In order for us, though, them, as well as even so, us today, to understand, however, the difference between our soul and spirit and the innocence that is eternal therein, as much as we would understand God's love for us, and with a pure heart, one that is not corrupted, one where life has not been either through trickery or deception stolen from us, where we unfortunately (laughs) don't even understand it well enough or never go back to test the theory, get a false read, but never go back for a second opinion on it. We live in shame and guilt, hiding out from God for the rest of our mortal lives And therein, never claim the forgiveness. Never are open to receiving the grace and the mercy. That really is essentially the gospel of Jesus Christ. God doesn't hate you. He loves you. He's not even mad at you because of the natural element. Because in the end, the devil didn't lie to Adam and Eve in the sense that he could not He did take the word of God, a truth. He could not argue that point. Either with the knowledge of good and evil or the understanding that death would come. But that's only physical. It's not spiritual. And even then, what are we? Are we dirt or the elements? No, it's just dirt. Yes, there's life eternal in a natural regard, but until the spirit of life, until God again would speak to the dirt, as well breathe life into it, as only God can and does, it's just dirt. Our bodies are dirt. I don't want to be too disrespectful. God created us in his image I don't know if it's humanoid. I don't think so. But even that passage suggests that it's not physical dimension other than God, I suppose, has some physical dimension because his spirit is manifest in physical terms. But it could be a plant. It could be a bird. 
It could be any measure of life as it would show itself materially, but it's spirit, spirit of life, Holy Spirit that brings life that is God. Jesus said that. They that worship God worship him in spirit, and herein is the truth. But Adam and Eve, as much the devil manipulated, deceived, lied, it wasn't with the facts, it was the interpretations. Adam and Eve interpreted it in a childish way. They never went back and tested it. They never heard the arguments against it. Now, would that be enough to save us? No, because the Old Testament is all about that. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, was a master at the law. Part of that was time, no doubt, spent in Egypt, which at the time was, if not the, one of the most advanced civilizations, cultures, peoples on earth. He also, Moses, was Hebrew. So he had history. He was raised by his mother, who was Hebrew. He knew his people. You could say it's in his genes. Was. But all of that came to him in punctuation not while he was in Egypt, though there was in that a sense of innocence that needed to be restored, in that the Hebrew people were being, even as Adam and Eve, mistreated, beaten down, <laughs> labeled, convinced that they were nothing but worthless servants. And that's not what they were not only because they were God's chosen people, but that's not what we should do to anybody. Nobody should be treated that way. But unless you understand, and that's again why Moses gave the law. That's why God, in all those ways I described, gave the law to Moses. So that we then, as much as we had partaken of the knowledge of good and evil, it had to pass through the knowledge of good and evil, not for the sake of putting it inside of us. God created us again to love. He created us with his Holy Spirit. A child is born into this world into iniquity and sin, having the potential for that to come out of them as it got on them, and it didn't take long or doesn't take long before it does that. Nonetheless, it's not for the sake of getting it into us as much as it is getting it out of us. God proves our guilt for us so that we don't argue against him. We are innocent until proven guilty, but what does it take for God to show us the iniquity? 
What does it take for God to show us the error in our ways? The only way that you go through life even remotely believing you are righteous without the blood of Christ, without the Holy Spirit rejuvenate, brought back to life as with he's in you. Hopefully you've not grieved him to the point where you have committed the unpardonable, which is to completely and totally smother or suffocate, to disable in such a way he can no longer speak to you. But for him to speak to you, the Holy Spirit, for him to come out of you, your head has to cooperate. But if you're insistent in your brain or the operations of your psychology that your soul and spirit is all right, that it's okay, that you're self-justified, it's not by the law which is only there again to establish the distinction between what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, according to who? According to God, but also those sequence of factors that lead to not only qualitative more life, but quantitatively more life, which for the sake of our conversations and I think in the word of God, we call that abundant life. Not death, abundant life. Let the corruptible go the way of corruption. It's going to anyhow. But that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It just means your flesh is corruptible. But the choice is yours. You can either abide in your flesh and therein the corruption of the flesh, or you can abide in Christ Jesus. Having the Holy Spirit alive prominently, preeminently within you. To what end? Not eternal death, but eternal life. Do you want to be dirt or do you want to be resurrected? Do you want to be human forever or do you want to have the new body, the resurrected body? Be a new creature in Christ Jesus. Do you want to live in the pit? Or do you want to ascend to heaven? Be the spirit that brings life or be so dependent upon that in such a way that you don't understand how to connect even to it because you've never gone back and tested it, the lie. And here it is elementally so. If you don't get what you can get in material regards, then you've missed it. Because in the end, all there is is death. That is not true. But if you're immature, if you've not used the good brain God gives you, if you've not gone through the evidence that, again, as God blessed Moses to not only lead the people, but to judge the people in righteousness, 
to set up the opportunity for confession of sin, to repent, to dig deep within and find the spirit of life, love, to be able to do this the way God intended when he created humankind, is to live in our humanity, which then is to be predicated in a fatalistic context of Eat, drink, and be happy, for tomorrow you die. Now, as much as I'm trying to provide the evidence that not only convicts you of your guilt, innocent until proven guilty, that you're really not innocent of yourself, or certainly your humanity, and that everything in your humanity, if not as with accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior and the essential dimension of confessing one's sin nature, one's iniquity, and repenting and saying, wait a minute, I don't want to live my life by this standard. If you don't do that, You're not going to find the life, the Holy Spirit that brings forth life from within you. You're going to grieve him. You're going to end up at a point or a condition of apostasy. And not only is it a falling away, but you can harden your heart so much that you do grieve the Holy Spirit. You can blaspheme the Holy Ghost. And what does that mean? Probably a lot of things that I don't even understand entirely. But one thing I do understand as much as it is so simple and basic for even me to understand, hopefully you will appreciate what I'm trying to share in that same sort of common sense, wisdom sort of way of understanding, comprehending. Is if you reject life, you're going to die. And if you reject the gift of life, as in the Holy Spirit, as in the Word of God, not only Old Testament, but as the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only New Testament, but is the basis of the example that we see in the New Testament of not only hearing the gospel, but living the gospel, you're going to die. What seemed to be true is a lie. You can make the case in immaturity, and there is an age of accountability. I believe that. And as much kids are innocent and probably are not going to be held accountable until they hit the age of accountability, those first few thoughts of, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? People are going to die. I'm going to die. Everything seems scary. Grandmother died. Grandfather died. Mom, dad pass away. (laughs) Your goldfish passes away. Burial at sea. Pets. And it's not funny. And it's not fun. I don't want to make light heart of it or too much. 
But I need to make distinction. In the flesh, everything about the flesh knows it's going to die and tries to do everything within itself, the flesh, to stay alive. Now, that's adaptive too, but only to an extent. And what is that extent? To know that for all things flesh, there is going to be appointed a day of their passing. Now, again, the flesh passes, as with dies, ceases to exist, but the soul and spirit doesn't. But if your soul and spirit has been stolen and it's now human or as with formation, when you hit the age of accountability, everything that you've misunderstood, everything that has been presented to you, the childishness, of rejecting the word. Again, a certain measure of innocence will cover that. But from the point of of that age of accountability where you can actually look at the evidence, make the decision for yourself, empirically study the evidence as it would even be laid out by God, In the Old and New Testaments, his royal law of life, perfect love, abundant life. If you study that and you reject that because everything around you is dying, you're not going to be able to accept, receive not only Jesus Christ, his gospel, but in doing so, you will eventually blaspheme the Holy Ghost. Your mind, what you're seeing in material regards and believing is all that there is to reality, being completely dismissive of the tree of life, partaking only of the knowledge of good and evil. Tree of life was also in the garden, but Adam and Eve did not even recognize that as needful. That's how immature their thinking was, how convincing, convicting, I said earlier, the devil was as to their imminent failure. And with that, not only one day you're going to die, but that it's a curse. Somehow God wants you to die. It is a curse, but God doesn't curse you, and God wants you to live. But the only way that you live is in spirit, and then the only way your spirit lives is to recognize the human corruption, the way the material world has altered your psychology, your way of thinking, your world paradigm to make it so pragmatic that you can't see beyond the physical dimension. You are no longer open to the possibilities. And with that, not only of eternal life, if you say there isn't any, you convince yourself, you, I guess, hunker down. You allow that stronghold 
to be constructed and then not allow the word of God to tear it down, you can't pass through the swords, the flaming swords. Why? Even if you read the Old and New Testament, those swords prevented Adam and Eve from entering back in to the garden. But unless you pass through, you're not going to be sanctified in the flesh. And it's not that sanctification in the flesh is going to save you, but sanctification in the flesh, as with the gatekeeper, will either allow the Holy Spirit to take, again, preeminence and prominence in your life or not. You have the power of life or death, not only in your tongue, as James might put it, but in your mind. But I can tell you right now, any thought about death is not an original thought. The devil inspired it. At least if it's counter to the word of God. Old and New Testament and testimony of the Holy Spirit who is well alive within you, just waiting for the opportunity that you might give it to take over, give him, to take over your life. Even that was not inspired by your human mind. Why? Because that's the iniquity. You can't comprehend it. You can't think of things outside of the material, the empirical, unless somebody, more than a body, unless God would give you insight, discernment, awareness. You can't. There's nothing to base it on. It's a hard thing to argue after the fact because God is liberal in his wisdom and discernment. Again, James, he does not withhold that. But also in James, there's an exhortation. Flee from the devil. It is so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day, which is nothing in material regards except leading to death. It's just the way of the natural world. That if you don't inspire yourself, I guess, or not allow yourself to be inspired by the word of God, encourage yourself with the word of God, the devil and the natural will steal that away from you every time. The innocence of childhood is stolen Because when you wake up one day and you realize, oh my goodness, it's all going to end in death. All this that I'm working for, all this that I'm laying my hands to, all these things that I value, that I see, that I experience in material terms, they're going to go. What am I going to do? I'm dependent upon them. I mistake the material manifestation of love for the source of love. Yes, hopefully. Yes, your mom and your dad loved you. But at the same time, 
It wasn't your mom or dad that was the source of that love. It was God. But children don't understand that. Their brain's not completely developed for one reason. Another reason would be, too, as much as there is an element of development, usually it takes the age of accountability before the brain finally achieves even the capability of an awareness of spirituality in a way that allows God to restore their innocence. Now, there's a feature of all this, too, that I have by intention withheld. <laughs> Don't accuse me of withholding wisdom from you. But for the sake of making the point, establishing again my case, you can live by rules and laws and your best desire To abide in them will sanctify you, but it won't save you. I did mention that a moment ago, but I didn't mention why. Because even as much, unless you do accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, you don't begin to understand just how powerful God's perfect love is. Yes, God gives us rules for the sake of, again, ordering our lives, for the sake, again, of knowing where life is, for the sake of, again, turning our life over our will and choices in life over to the Holy Spirit, for the sake, again, of not only life but abundant life, qualitative, quantitative, qualitative life. But he does so through forgiveness. If Adam and Eve could have asked for forgiveness, I'm sure it would have been there. But in their immaturity, had they reached the age of accountability? Possibly so. I don't know. It must have only, it must have been imminently so, only shortly thereafter that we see this encounter between Eve and the devil. She thought it through, but she didn't realize just how much God loves you. Which is why I say he doesn't curse you. The devil curses you and then you believe it. And then you curse yourself. It is a curse. But it's not of God's construction. He's not looking to kick you out. He wants you to stay there. Now, maybe I had to get kicked out again to really understand. Again, I keep using once more, I keep using the word distinction. Maybe I have to know what it's like to not have it before you really appreciate it. I don't know. But I can tell you what to do. I can even try to make you do it. But unless you understand forgiveness, the power of love, not only that God's love has, 
over you, the world you live in, the power to save you is what I'm trying to capture. Besides all the elements of the natural that are inclined to kill you, (laughs) at least transfigure you. That's a better biblical sort of word to use, transfigure you. But it's not just God's love for you. You have to realize that that love is in you. And as much as, again, there is any, once more, distinction to be had, the things of the corruptible need to just go the way of corruption. But your soul shouldn't. Your heart shouldn't. You should not become negative and critical and pessimistic and even so overly judgmental, hypocritical, favoring self, putting others down. Again, the Hebrew people coming out of Egypt. Moses was right to be indignant. If they'd stayed there, they would have died in Egypt. That was not God's plan. Don't live in this. You don't have to. Moses was not Jesus, right? Emphatic, right? Emphatic. And right, righteous. He wasn't. But the law, as Moses gave it, was for the sake of preservation. To at least try to keep your mind in tune with what your spirit, Holy Spirit, what God created you to be in spiritual dimension and term until such a day that you can make that decision, the age of accountability where you can make that decision to turn your life over to Jesus so that Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, take you out of Egypt, out of the bondage of natural existence, where there's always going to be somebody, illegitimately so, unrighteously so, who's going to try to lord over you. Why? Because they want to eat, drink, and be merry. And you're just competing with them for all the festive sort of elements of that. I want my life to be good, but nobody's life should be good to the exclusion of other people's lives, at least not that disparately so. And nobody should, in their passion for natural life, kill somebody else just to get what they have so that they could feel better about themselves or so that in a material regard, how much money do you need? How much money? And how self-righteous it is to preach sermons when you've got billions and billions of dollars. Give away, rich young ruler, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then follow after Christ. But that wasn't just for the sake of modeling your life. That was for the sake of testifying. It's a little hypocritical. Oh, yeah, well, you got billions of dollars and I got nothing. And you're telling me how to live life? Give your stuff away, live my life, and then I might listen. Otherwise, you're just about you. Selfish, self-serving. I think we've got more than enough of that. I think the devil's trickery, 
Nobody's gone and empirically tested. Everybody's chasing after what seems to be. And even in their sort of pharisaical way, their sort of generosity, their charitable sort of giving, they'll throw a little bread from the table. (laughs) And even the dogs eat from the king's table. Jesus saw that as righteousness with that woman. Not because he was throwing her bread, but because he understood and lived where she did. And he also, in that, was making distinction. Whitewashed sepulchers. They give the appearance of glory, but there's none. It's illegitimate. It's not established in charity. And charity is not only love, but charity is that aspect of love where we give. And how much do we give? We give it all away. Now, I'm not saying you can't have anything. I'm also not saying that it's wrong to take care of you and your family. All I'm saying is, if the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit moves you to be charitable, be charitable. Have concern for your brother and sister, whether they're in Christ or not. But also realize this. You are Jesus in this world. They may let you get by with it, having, when they don't. But it's only with the hope that somehow what you have to share is going to give them a chance to have also. I'm a big believer that people have to in an empirical, again, sort of manner or way, experience, establish things for themselves. You can tell somebody how to do something, but they have to learn. And with that, I'm a big believer, too, that we all should pull our weight. So just giving things to somebody without there being some element of growth and development doesn't work. But if we do this the right way, then everybody can win. (laughs) Will we all be rich? billionaires? Probably not, but we'll have enough. But when you don't start out with a righteous premise, if you don't include God in it, if you don't establish those things according to the Old and New Testament, his rules, his legislation, why? Because it's in us. It quickly gets into us. Iniquity. We're born into iniquity and sin. And the devil's lie, again, is prevalent, or prevalent. I guess I could pronounce it prevalent. Prevalent in the world. But you don't want that to be you. Why? Because it's not God. Was this God's intention? No. We need to love God others as we love ourselves. But if we don't do that by recognizing there is but one true God and love him with all who we are, mind, soul, body, and spirit, then it's going to amount to nothing less, uh, nothing greater than the lesser. You want to be innocent That's your innocence. What's it established in? It's not established in you. 
It's established in God and what he has chosen you to do, your calling. But you can't be self-righteous, and in that, you're never going to be able to make yourself innocent. And if you've got guilt and shame in your life, take it to Jesus. God forgives. Moses had to learn, ask specifically for God to show him his glory. It is good to be innocent. It is good to try to preserve innocence. It's impossible to do. The only way innocence is either restored or if there is preservation, it's in Christ Jesus. And what Jesus is, is forgiveness under the world. There is a judgment in that, but it's not Jesus judging. It's you, you know. You know when you're falling short. Don't lie. Again, take it to Christ. He'll show you how to do it. The Holy Spirit in you can lead you and guide you along the paths of righteousness. Will there be material manifestation? Yes, but it's a spiritual journey. And if in the end of the material world, existence for you, your world, your bodily existence and world, if there's any hope of eternal life, it's because of not your body, which is corruptible, but your spirit and your soul, but not just human, because even that is still constructed of natural element and material experience. It's the word of God, and then more so, It's the Holy Spirit in you. You get to be Jesus. You get to love the world. You get to demonstrate Christ. And you get to live forever. What's wrong with that? Again, I want to thank you for joining me today on what is Covenant Specialized Pastoral Care Services Christian Counseling Ministry. Again, my name, Michael David Clay. Dr. Michael David Clay. And with that, if there's anything I can do for you, I'd be glad to do it. I post the email address. We do offer Christian counseling, specialized pastoral care. If you need that, we'd be glad to assist. Um, Anything we could do. Connect you with people. uh, Help you to find what you're looking for, what you're needing. Anything we could do, we'd be glad to do it. As long as it's godly. But if for whatever reason you can't reach out to me or have no opportunity to let me know, uh, I hope that you choose to join us again on our next podcast. And I want you to know, sincerely, I consider this the greatest aspect of ministry in my life, is to be able to bring encouragement to you. Again, I want to thank you for joining us today on today's podcast and would like to invite you back for the next edition of Once More, What is Covenant Specialized Pastoral Care Services, Christian Counseling Ministry. Thanks.